This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Have you ever sat at your desk and looked out and thought of an idea that you can use to start a new business? Have you ever looked around and said, hey, wait a second, here's an opportunity that I don't think people are picking up on that I can really do well? Well, our next guest, David Towell, did just that. Here's a man who is a prominent attorney who came up with an idea for how to invest in companies that through ups and downs and sheer will manage to turn into a reality. You're going to love this show. David Towell, check him out. Delving into current events to uncover relevant wisdom. Uncover relevant wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network. David Towell, the president of Maglin Capital, an event-driven hedge fund, is here with us. An individual who literally launched, had an idea, and I, I, I remember him when he first had this idea, and the world thought that he was crazy, but he had an idea, and he had a dream, and decided that no one was going to get in his way to see the reality of that dream. He launched a fund. He's with us today talking about how you can take a dream and making it a reality. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charlie. I'm happy to be here. It is such an honor to have you on. So tell me a little bit about you, Maglin Capital, right? What is it? It is an event-driven hedge fund. What does that mean? Okay, so I'm going to break it down very simply for you. Um, so in order to make money on investments, you've got to focus on an area where people aren't focused on uh, and identify opportunities that other people aren't identifying. So we look to our backgrounds and we, I mean myself and my partner, and I'll talk about partnership a little bit on down the line, uh, but we focus on an area that A, plays to our strengths in terms of our background, our education, um, and then at the same time, uh, an area that other uh, investment firms are not focused on. So um, to develop that further, it's an event-focused fund, which means that we identify particular catalysts or particular events that are going to occur with respect to certain companies. Um, and we go ahead and invest prior to those events occurring with the expectation that those events will occur that will go ahead and drive prices higher for the most for part. The stock, for the, their stock. Stock price, bond price, whatever it may so be. So you see someone going down a road and you're saying to yourself, they're going the ro- down the wrong road. They don't know what's happening. The market's changing, right? There's going to be some you know, larger geopolitical problem or they don't realize that they think they're doing great, but the industry's changing on them. Mm-hmm. You study the event around the business mm-hmm. and then you know that that affects the business. Right. Okay. So in your example, that would be where we go ahead and short the security. In other words, mm-hmm. bet that the things that, that something is going to go down. Now, let me dr- drill down a little bit further. So my experience and my partner's experience is particularly with respect to bankruptcy and restructuring and turnaround of companies. And so the types of events that we focus on are particularly those types of events that relate to a corporation's bankruptcy or restructuring 
or turnaround. So to go back to your example that you said with regard to geopolitical issues, we don't focus on that stuff at all. There are event-driven managers that focus on geopolitical mm-hmm. issues. We do not. We are event-driven with a distressed focus. So we're focused mm-hmm. on corporations, primarily in North America, that are going through some sort of restructuring, bankruptcy process, or turnaround in their operations. How common is this? How many funds are out there like this today? I mean, are you, are you one of millions? Are you one of dozens? Is this something that, you know, you guys are coming up with this as an idea and saying, this is really cool. Let's look at the world in a very specific way. How does, how many people are doing things like this? There are lots and lots of funds that do this, what I've explained um, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to go back to my first comment you need to be unique in some way in order to A, make more money than other people and B, attract investors who could otherwise invest in lots of other funds that do this generally. Right. So what is our kind of unique spin on this game if it wasn't unique enough until now? So let's say we've narrowed the yeah. world of thousands upon thousands of hedge funds down to, let's say, a couple of hundred that do this. Well, first of all, this is all we do. So usually this type of strategy inside of other larger funds is just a piece of a bigger patchwork of investment strategies that that fund does. We entirely do this. The second thing is we run a very concentrated portfolio. That is very unique okay? because concentration means that there's going to be volatility, right? And the gains and losses are going to be big. Um, Most investors are looking for something steady. Um, we look for monster gains. So just to give you an example, in 2012 and 2013, our fund gained 41% and 59% respectively. In February, our fund, this February, that just closed, just finished a couple of days ago, we were up 20% in that month. Those are the types of numbers that we expect, much more on the upside than on the downside. And then over the totality of time, we expect a return of about 20% annualized. There are very few funds out there that have the capacity to generate that type of return or even aim for that type of return. We understand we alienate a whole host of people once we say that, but that is what we do. That's our recipe. The second thing to make it even narrower in terms of us providing something unique in the investing world is we focus on companies that are smaller, that the gargantuan funds can't even pay attention to because they are between, let's say, 150 million to about a billion in total enterprise value. It doesn't even pay for a fund that's managing a billion dollars to look at most of the companies that we look at. So Mm -hmm. there are less people looking at it, which means that there's more opportunity for us. And so therefore, to answer your question, exactly what we're doing, we think there are very few funds doing exactly right. what we're doing. And, and you bring up an interesting point, and I want to sort of now, with what you just said, I want to st- take a step back, but I don't want to forget what you said, because I want to sort of start to lay out for people what you're doing here, which is, what I'm hearing you say is two points, and these are two very critical points for your business, but for every business, which is one, high expectations. Being able to say to yourself, we're setting a benchmark of incredible excellence. And so to get there, we've got to sort of hone in and hone in and hone in and hone in and figure out we're not in this for 5%. We're not in this for 10%. We want to get to a place where we're outperforming everybody else. And secondly, what I'm hearing you say is that to do so, we have to look at an area where nobody else is looking. And so these two sort of are counterbalances that I want to talk about. And anyone who's listening right now, I want you to sort of take note of what I'm saying because what I'm hearing you say, David, is that these two ideas I'm sure we're going to get back to again and again is the ability to set high expectations for yourself and the implications of that, 
The implications of that for you are the ability to be more and more unique. And secondly, to have the courage, if you will, to not just chase the big boys. Right? It's, it's easier, so to speak, to say, to come in and say, hey, listen, we want to be in this fund. What are the big guys doing? We want to do what they're doing. And just copy the big guys. But you're saying, no, 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 no. Let the big guys be the big guys. We're actually going to find maybe the, the, the pond that may have smaller fish, but we can actually fish a lot more of them as, as, a, as a strategy. But let's start from the beginning. So you were not born into the hedge fund business, right? You didn't come into a world where you graduated from Stanford Business School and they handed you a couple of dollars because you won some competition and you launched a hedge fund. Where did you start? How did you first get into this business? So this has been an incredibly circuitous path for my partner and me, uh, but we value and cherish and frankly hold up um, everything we've done until now um, as very valuable um, and almost indispensable components of what we do. So I started my career as an attorney. Um, I just pause for a second and say, that's a very, very, very important thing because on the risk tolerance spectrum, I've essentially moved across the entire spectrum. Right, right, right. Absolutely, I've been from one bookend to the very other bookend. Right. Um, I now have the fire as close to my feet as I possibly can have it. Um, and that's very important for me as a person. I will only get the most out of myself when I have my fire, when I have the fire as close or the flame as close to me as it possibly can be. I just know what drives me. So let's jump in. For those that are listening right now, let me just sort of take that even further. What, what you're talking about, David, is that attorneys typically, not all, there are a lot of entrepreneurial ones, but the ones where you started in the big firms, the actual associates in these big firms are being trained to be in a way, risk averse, right? The, what the value that you're getting as a big attorney, many cases, which is fine. I'm not in any way knocking big attorneys, but the value that they're giving in many ways is to be the person in the room that's trying to protect risk. That's what attorneys do. They 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 contract around risk. They advise the client to make sure that they're protecting their risk. So let me cut in for a second. What I want I want to go to an even more primal driver. And that is the reason a person becomes an attorney is because it's somewhat of a guaranteed paycheck. Got it. Yes. Right. In other yes. words, they're not compensated necessarily for performance. As a matter of fact, even if they're a partner and even if they get compensated on the basis of winning business, so to say, at the end of the day, win or lose on a litigation, you get paid for the hours that you work. Right. Right. I hate that. That is the worst. That is not a motivator for me. I am not self-motivated to the point where I can just work without having any skin in the game on the outcome of whatever it is that I am working on. Did you know that going into law or did you realize that while you were in there already? I probably knew that somewhere along the way, but just I did not want to face the truth. Uh -huh. It is a very hard truth to face, which is essentially I'm saying, I will never work as hard for somebody else as I will work for myself. Right. Some what? people, I'm astounded, can work as hard both ways. I, I don't understand that, right? right. Well, they're, they're getting a benefit from it. Some people are able to say, I'm going to pass up the, the expectation of a larger piece of what I'm working on because I get the security. Yeah. Right. But what you're getting at, which is really important that I, I'm sure many people feel, which is many people are listening, I believe, are working for somebody, which is totally fine. 
some people that are listening are working for someone and going, I want to work for myself or in the compensation structure to, to motivate me, me needs to include me. But facing that reality and facing the implications of that reality are incredibly difficult. And I know that you worked in Davis Polk and Wardwell. I understand that that was a, I mean, I worked there too. I was worked there together with you. That I, and I know that is a prestigious, prestigious law firm. And so to grapple with that reality of this may not be where I am best suited is incredibly difficult because that is a place with really nice looking golden handcuffs. Oh, for sure. Now, I will say something that I say a lot and I'll develop it right after. And that is desperation is often the greatest inspiration. So there was a point in my legal career where I realized that this was just not going to end well if I stayed where I was. Right. It just wasn't going to go the right way, whether it was going to end in partnership or not. It wasn't going to end the right way for me for sure. It wasn't going to end in a place that I wanted to be long term. Right. Um, I didn't. I don't mean to have. It wasn't an epiphany. It wasn't this great philosoph- philosophical, you know, feeling. But there was a point, and it developed over time, where I. It was clear that I was desperate. I needed to go do something else. And the sooner I did that, the better, because it. Would, I just ran much, much more risk the longer I hung on to those golden handcuffs in some ways to continuing to entrench myself in a line of business that I knew I wouldn't be in for forever. I grew older and so on. And I, 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 I was gaining experience in an area where I probably wouldn't be for a long period of time. So the sooner I exited and started doing something else, the better. Right. At that point, let's just be absolutely real. I was married. I had three children. I had lots of bills to pay. Right. And oh my God, I have this right side of the balance sheet that is also pretty big. Right. So I better figure out some transition here that I'm going to be able to ramp up on the other side fairly quickly in order to make this transition. So let's pause you for a second because a lot of people feel this way and I want to know what you did to get through it. A lot of people get to a place where they say, I don't belong where I am. I need to make a decision. I don't want to entrench myself in a business that I'm not going to see a long-term value for me, but I got obligations. I've got, you know, bills to pay. I've got maybe reputation to uphold and they are paralyzed to make the decision of, I need to move on. So did you draw on something? Did you even think about it at the time? Was it just a sense of, I had to leave, but what did you draw on to say to yourself, okay, I'm out. And now there's, I mean, I'm out. I burned my bridge. I'm not staying anymore. I'm not going to justify myself. I'm not going to just wait for the weekends. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how many people that I speak to that just sort of live their lives, you know, Friday to Sunday night and be like, okay, I'll suffer through, you know, five sevenths of my life because I have bills to pay, but I'm never going to push. So you've got a family, you know, you're not the guy that's like, okay, listen, I'll, I'll move back with my mom and like, you know, I'll live on the couch for two months. You got to come home to your wife. You got to come home to your kids. You got to pay your bills. You got to make sure the house, you know, the, the lights stay on. What did you draw on when you made that that decision, that move, that said to you, "I got nothing. I got no fallback. Maybe you have some savings. Maybe you have some family, but you don't have an entire. You didn't jump and say, okay, now I'm gonna. Someone didn't pick you out. You didn't leave because you got another offer. You made the call to leave before you had the the safe yeah. secure. So what did you what did you do internally to give you through that? So. I went to Credit Suisse in 2005, and 
Um, I didn't go into, like you said, a role that they were trying to fill. I wasn't cherry picked out of a firm. I definitely, you know, I, I spoke to a I had a few opportunities. Um, I had an opportunity to go work for a hedge fund. I had an opportunity to go work in California for a sell side investment firm. I actually placed friends of mine in both of those jobs and I turned those down. I had an idea for a business um, along with my partner, this guy who's still to to today, my partner. Um, We had an idea together to go ahead and start a business at Credit Suisse. Um, it was an, it was a unique business. I don't think we need to get into the details of that business, but suffice to say, it wasn't something that they were doing. It was something that looked really good on paper and made sense kind of in a theoretical way. And someone said to us in not so many words, if you're willing to go ahead and gamble away your legal careers, I'm happy to go ahead and support you in the greatest way that I can support you mind you, this is an unproven business. Um, I'll give you a telephone and a computer. I'll give you one year's worth of salary, so to say, so you don't have to take an entire drawback from what you were earning at the law firms. Bonus is off the table, but you know I'll compensate you on a fixed basis for a year. And that's it. Wow. If, if, if it doesn't work after a year... Well, then all bets are off, but I'm going to give you a year's worth of runway. I actually think we were blessed to get that because in, this, in, in today's day and age, from what I know about my world, giving someone a year's worth of runway is a pretty big thing on an untested idea. Yeah. And, and the, the, the rule of thumb that I've seen is that if you're starting your own business, you, the way you start it, unless you get that deal, is you build up a nest egg so that you have your 12, 18 months. If anyone's looking to start a business yeah. and you got zero, you got you got you can't do you it. Gotta you gotta figure can't. I need at least twelve to eighteen months of runway. I'm gonna Just to try. burn through this yeah. and I may fall flat on my face. Right. But better than day one, you gotta pay your bills. Exactly. So thank God we were blessed with that offer. That's why I turned down the other offers that I had. And essentially someone was giving me a one year trial. Uh-huh. Which is a tremendous risk as it is from what what you were leaving. My partner and I, if you asked us do we think that we could make this work? We felt with every bone in our bodies, putting mental capacity aside, we just felt in the pit of our stomach that this was going to work. Come hell or high water, we were going to make this work. It makes sense. We're going to make a business out of something that no one's ever done before on the level that we were going to do it. We may be burned through eight months of trying to make this thing work. Um, And not to say that we didn't have any progress, but we didn't have any hard dollars after eight months. Month eight through month 12, it was like a tidal wave. Like we just brought in a ton of capital. We proved concept. Folks were like, you paid for yourselves and then some, let's keep rolling. Wow. So you went the first, just, just take us through this a little slower. You, start, you have this idea for a business, this event-driven hedge fund that is, was at that point in the space you were in unheard of. 
right? You, you, I mean, people understood the concept, but it wasn't like you said, hey, these 12 people are doing, we want to be number 13. You're right. saying, I can put two pieces together. I come from this background in law. Here's how I think the market can move. If I applied my knowledge to the business world, then I can make something unique. No one knew it was possible. You guys didn't know if it was possible. You just had this pit. You had this gut. You had a year of runway, and you spent eight months, and you, every day you woke up for eight months, and you saw failure. You saw some momentum, but it, the concept wasn't built. Correct. So you pushed and you pushed and you pushed in month eight of the of the twelve, which is the fourth quarter. Right. You got you got your momentum coming in. You had the, the title wave finally just right. Crashed. Already in month eight, we were talking before the money started to come in. We're already talking to the management of like maybe can you give us a, another six months? Maybe? <laughs> like, in other words, we knew our time was running thin at that point, and um, and then it started to just you know it started to happen. And what started um, to happen? Money started to come money, in. You, money you, came in. Your, yeah, your, profits came in. You were betting on things. You were, you were, you were investing in things, and the investment started to, to yeah, play out. Yeah, things started to pay off. Yeah. And these are longer term investments, right? These aren't day to day trades. You're, you're, you're investing in yeah, something and taking a bunch of months. At the time, they were a bunch of months. What we did at Credit Suisse is not, I don't do what I do today exactly what I did at Credit Suisse. I actually built a business there with my partner for them based on distressed accounts receivable. It has a lot to do in terms of theoretical understanding and analysis of what I do today, but I cut my teeth in terms of distressed analysis and distressed investing at Credit Suisse. And you and this is an important point that I want everyone to hear is that you did not go to business school for this. You did not have a training. Thankfully, I didn't go to business school. For you this. came up with this theory being a lawyer in the right. You came up with this theory thinking that's what it was. You sat down in your legal capacity and said, hey, wait a second. There is a opportunity in the marketplace that I'm seeing. I got to use my own head. And the world probably said to you, you're crazy. No one's done it before. I'm sure if it's a good idea, someone would have thought of it. Not you. Oh, we had thousands of naysayers. Yeah, of thousands. And it was, and it's not even like you can go back to some place and go, no, 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 no. I read it in a book, or someone else is doing it. Or you're saying, hey, I have an idea. I think it makes sense. I'm not sure, and I got a year to prove it. And you and one other person in the world, and I'm sure that was it. Like you know, you had supportive wives and some promise some some supportive friends, and one supportive guy who's going to give you a little bit of runway. And with just this belief and your diligence, I'm sure you didn't come up with this overnight, right? I, I'm sure it took you yeah, we a worked while. Yeah, we our tails off. We while you were in the day firm. And night. While you're in the firm thinking about, it, is this right? Is it right? Is it right? And then against the entire, so to speak, world, you went out, you tried it, and you know what you happened? You swung and missed for eight months. For sure. And I'm sure when you swung and missed those first four months, your friends are saying, like, just cut your losses, go back to what you're doing, you know, hide your tail, go back into the cave. I am a firm believer of the fact that 90 plus percent of success in this world is not from a success from the word go. There's nobody that gets touched with a wand over the head and all of a sudden they're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I'm a firm believer that most people that make it to the finish line with grand success in whatever avenue of life, frankly, financial, social, familial, whatever it is, the overwhelming majority of very successful people get to that finish line and become wildly successful in that channel of life by stumbling and falling and fumbling all the way till the end. And they learn at every single stumble, fumble, fall down, blah, blah. I'm not going to say that I'm not one of those against all odds person. I didn't have to face 
you know, this enormous Herculean, you know, effort against me and I prevailed. I am not that. But I, I defi- we definitely faced odds every single day that we did overcome and we persevered and we made it through. Um, would I go, you know, fighting down to my grave on some of this stuff? Probably not. I'd probably give up somewhere, right. you know, close to I'm that. I'm sure, right. But, but I learned every single part of the way. So I'll give, I'm going to give you a very concrete example. So you say I didn't go to business school, right? And I didn't start on the banking side of things, okay? So most people would say, ah, what's your legal background worth? I mean, let's be real. And what's your, what's your time on the sell side worth? If you became an investor on day one, like there's guys that know that they want to be stock pickers from the word go. They're managing portfolios from when they're in high school and they right. do it in college and they're head of the investment club. And then immediately right, right, once right, they leave, right. they go work for whatever, KKR or Blackstone or whatever. But we're up against guys and what we do, right? Up against with whatever guys that we do. And, and what I do requires lots of skills, right? I'm in, I'm in a concentrated event driven situations. And sometimes I have to do stuff. I have to call on management and say, Hey guys, why aren't you doing this? And if they don't listen to me, sometimes maybe I have to call them out publicly and file a public letter saying, I want, I'm an X percent shareholder of this company. I want them to do more or they're caught in bankruptcy court because they're restructuring their balance sheet. And I need to go down to bankruptcy court and we need to argue. These guys who are just stock pickers and all they do is look at screens, they are so scared to get out from behind their screens, they just don't know. Meanwhile, they're gifted, they're brilliant guys, but they just don't know how to do that. Me, it's second nature to me. I have no problem calling up the chairman of the board of a company, <laughs> going down to court and arguing, busting out in the middle of a, you know, a, a, a board of directors conference of a company, a meeting, making a presentation to the management of a company. I I have no problem with any of that stuff. And it's amazing to me how people become so pigeonholed. They become such jocks at what they do that stepping a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right is so outside their comfort zone that they're debilitated. I have no fear of doing anything as long as I'm correct and genuine in what I do. I don't care what the forum is for it. No problem at all. And I wouldn't have that confidence if I wasn't a Davis Polk lawyer or a Skadden lawyer or I didn't work on the sell side at Credit Suisse. I mean, if I have to call up a broker dealer and yell at them because they are acting improperly based on how they're trading someone's security, I know what that is. I was on that side of the table right. before. But if you were never on that side of the table, you don't know how many times they're pulling the wool over your eyes. You can't even imagine. Right, which, which, leads, which leads me to the idea of what you're saying, which is that many times in life when you make a crossover to an industry, it's because you come from a different industry that gives you a unique advantage versus going right down the fairway. See, we all think we live in a world today where, you know, the, the, the media has sort of sensationalized success. And if you're 24 and you're not a billionaire, there's something wrong with you because everyone else is a billionaire at 24 if they're smart because look at the Forbes, you know, Forbes 400 and like half the people are 24-year-old billionaires. So you assume or you think this is like this in sports and in, in politics and in business and in life. Even in education, see with my own kids, like they're taking standardized tests and they're like one years old. They're like, my two-year-old is like, you know, they're like, well, I don't know if he's really going to make it. He's already two. He can't play blocks. We're getting to a place right now where we're bringing the standardization of success so early that you think that if you're already starting your career, if you're 30 and you're not already halfway down the fairway to your career, then there's something wrong with you. 
And when you make a crossover to another industry, then you're in a disadvantage. You got to go back to to the beginning of, of of the line. So let me say something. I absolutely agree with you. And so everybody's attention has been turned towards what I'll call miraculous success. And there will always be miraculous success, right? There will always be the Mark Zuckerberg in whatever whatever's going on that day, right? Um, and, and it doesn't need to be in financial circles. It could be in any circle, right? Some guy just so happens to find the perfect wife to marry at 13 years old. And they start, <laughs> you know, dating. They, right, exactly. They, they went from third grade all the way to the altar together. So there is miraculous success. The unfortunate thing, like you said, is the media focuses us on that. And social media has only made it much worse. Right. Um, and then the other type of success is the impossible to replicate success. In other words, this long road that goes through so many twists and turns that once success is reached, someone copying that is impossible. Right. Because someone to, co- once we get to where, I mean, I'm successful now. I think I'm, I consider myself pretty successful with, you know, with God's help, it'll continue to grow and grow and grow. And I'm sure this is only chapter whatever of a very long book. Um, but for someone to try to copy what I do, that means they need to be a lawyer and they need to have gone and worked on the sell side for a bunch of years. And then they need to go on out on their own with no monster seed money to go ahead and capitalize them immediately. And they need to build brick by brick by brick. I am confident in the fact that once my building is built, there's not going to be anyone that's going to be able to replicate that building. It'll be so impenetrable. It'll be so unique. The same way Mark Zuckerberg is unique. His just came miraculously, right? Mine has come through just a one brick at a time, but it's going to be impossible to recreate. Right. But that, but that leads us to though, and this is why we have the show, which is, and I had this conversation once with somebody in, almost in the same way, everyone's got a chess game, right? And so in, like you're, what you're saying, which is it's impossible, so to speak, to replicate a chess game because every move has a counter move and you can't check move 12 because it's so different. The one to 11, each move had a counter move. But at the end of the day, there still are rules of chess and there still are preferred moves. And the idea that you have an idea that you've been thinking about because you're in industry one and you have a unique window into industry two and you're saying to yourself, hey, wait a second, because I wasn't born in the system and because when I was in business school, no one taught me these things. And because I'm looking at it from a perspective of a lawyer into a bankruptcy in distressed industry and going, hey, wait a second, if you do A, B, and C, you can bring something else out to the marketplace. That is something that people are going through every single day. And what they're mostly facing, which is what I'm excited for you to say on the show, and I know people are thinking this and they're he- hopefully they're listening to the show, is they're saying to themselves, hey, wait a second, you can't do it. Why? It's not your industry. Are you crazy? You can't cross over. You're not going to have the skills and the talents of the people that are in that industry. So you're going to get blown out. And what I'm hearing you say, and as we start to build this whole you know chess game that you've been playing, is that when you see something that could be unique in an industry, it could be possibly that it is the exact reason your your success is specifically because you don't have the other skills. And that your particular skill comes into an industry that has been sort of growing up one way. And now you come in as a lateral and going, hey, wait a second, guys. 
I may not be able to look at a balance sheet like you, and I can't model out the way you guys model out, but guess what? Because I was a lawyer, I was able to, now I can argue or talk or, or, or see or not have to rely on numbers but can feel something in my gut or look someone in the eyes or see an industry from a macro perspective and make that happen. And what's going to happen along the way for everyone listening, and David's my witness because it happened to you, you're going to have a lot of people tell you, don't think of it. Don't think of it. Don't <laughs> yeah. Don't think of it. And like you said, if you want to build something, you got to be willing to do it brick by brick, right? So now you're at Credit Suisse. You're there for what? 12 months, 18 months. So what happens next? Um, what happens next? We grow our business. Um, it grows like wildfire. It's doing great. It's two guys that are bringing in, I don't know, 30 million of P&L. Wow. 30 million of profit. Wow. For Credit Suisse, it doesn't even move the needle. Right, 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 right. <laughs> What's 30 million? For Credit but Suisse. But it's between two guys, so it's a lot of fun. And we're having a, a, a ball. But, um, but we realize, listen, um, it's time to move on our next move across the risk tolerance spectrum, which is we're going to further, I like to use the analogy of, we're going to further do the circus acts on the high wire with no safety net beneath us. That's really what it was, right? Um, and so we're going to increase the level of difficulty on the dive, um, and there's going to be no safety net now. And so we said, it's time for us to go. And um, we're going to launch this hedge fund. We're going to find some you know, initial capital from some people that we know and frankly trust us. They bet on the jockey as opposed to betting on the strategy. And they say, you know, Dave, Steven, you guys are smart. You should be able to make this work. You did it at Credit Suisse. You should be able to replicate it outside. What's, what's the real difference? Um, we're not going to attract, you know, the usual suspects of hedge fund capital because we don't have the hedge fund pedigree. We've never worked at a hedge fund before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is, you're launching a hedge fund with a hedge fund without ever, ever launched a hedge fund before. This is just great. I, I love this. But most guys, if you look with deeply successful track records, didn't have hedge fund experience. But that's they so came from some crazy, you know, some discipline where they said, okay, I, I probably could do this better than the investors. Like biotech. I am biotech. I worked at some biotech firm for umpteen years. I know how to do this better than anybody. Right. And people don't realize that, but that's really how it works. It's the ability to cross over into an area that may not have been your specific <clears throat> area that you can say, hey, I can do this better. And I'm not going to be intimidated by the people that are sort of the establishment. Yeah. Like the, the most successful big macro investors or poli-sci geniuses, right? They understand how governments work. And so that's how they go ahead and plan out their macro investing. Well, it's Italy versus Japan versus the US versus, well, I don't know, whatever other, you know, and that's what they go ahead and they Amazing. analyze all day long. So um, I, my, my partner and I are very fond of saying, if you can't learn something in a week, then it's a problem. You should be able to pick up anything inside of a week, anything new inside of a week and enough to be dangerous. And so, you know, we're smart guys. We have pretty high IQ. I mean, yes, there's a ton of luck in what we do. And I'd much rather be lucky than be smart any day of the week. Um, but we could pick up anything pretty quickly. And we learned the hedge fund industry, you know, it wasn't a long stretch for us at this point. But again, yes, 
We were operating like our wives looked at us like we were insane, but they're totally <laughs> along for the ride. And, um, and that's it. And now I'm as far along the risk spectrum as I could be and as far along as I can be on the independent spectrum also. Right. And that's another thing I would say. Um, I love answering to my wife and my children. Um, I've learned that answering to my partner is probably one of the luckiest things that I have in life. He's my check on everything. That's the way our relationships work. We, we've been, I've been together with my partner now for almost as long as I've been married. Wow. And I spend more hours of the day with him, obviously, than, than my wife. Um, but I don't want to answer to anybody else at some point. I answer to investors now, and that's great. And you know, that's a talent in and of itself. But I think for a lot of, I, I, don't, I don't know if we will want to get to this, but the next stage beyond this um, is simply investing my own capital and not having to answer to anybody as an investor except for myself. Whether we continue to manage outside capital, I mean, we're a far, far way away from that. I mean, we're still a small fund. Um, but I am as far along as I've, I've wanted to get at this point. So when you started Maglin, right, when you, what was that first day like when you, when you said to you, you looked at your partner and said, okay, it's me and you, we have investors, you got people you got to answer on the investment side, but it's really the two of you that is now in control. You're not sitting at a desk in, in, in Credit Suisse. You're not, you're not sitting in an in a, in a office in you know, Davis Polk, you know, dreaming about it. That's it. It's a two of you in a room or in two rooms or in three rooms and you got screens on top of you. I'm sure you got like, you know, TV screens going all over the place. What was that like when you first went off on your own? So the, the, the one thing that a lot of hedge fund guys, I think, um, stumble with, that a lot of allocators, a lot of investors question that we didn't really have a problem with is business risk. In other words, are we going to be able to run a business? Forget about picking good investments. That's only part of the business. You've got to run a business. Right. You've got to balance your books. You've got to, you know, record Pay your trades. Bills, You've right. got to, yeah, all that garbage. That really wasn't a problem for us. That was like a sixth sense. We know how to do that. So that we'll, again, inside yeah. of a week, we should be able to learn anything that we need to know. And we came from, you know, pretty businessy backgrounds. You know, our families, both, you know, self-made business people. So, you know, we, we didn't think that that was uh, an issue. The issue that we hadn't confronted, and thank God we had two gaining months right out of the gate, was a loss. What, what, what happens do? when we lose money? Right. Also, especially because your business is so you know, market-specific, right? And that it may not be your fault. The market may oh, have just yeah, gone totally. against you. And like, you did everything right. I mean, you get up to bat, you swing in the right way. And it, you know, it was a, it was a change up. You didn't realize. Yeah, the market's not pricing my securities right. And the investor's <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? This is what the price is. What are you talking about? You're in La La Land, man. <laughs> so um, so that, was, that was something that we needed to learn. Dealing with loss. Dealing with loss and dealing with investors dealing with loss. Right. Um, it is an enormously difficult skill to master. But once you've mastered it, it's, um, it's so rare to, to do it well. Right? There are so many hedge funds that when they go on a losing streak guys that come from incredible pedigree with incredible track records, with incredible success, with incredible everything. And then they get into a losing streak and just 
everything falls apart for them and they can never recover. I think the ability to say, I've looked down the barrel of the gun and I've emerged a victor with everything intact, that's like you're a hero, you're a champion, a champion. Because then you say to yourself, I don't care, come what may, I'll figure it out. I may make it through with all my investors, maybe I'll make it through with a portion of them, but I'll just grab a bunch of others that don't make it through. I'll grab guys to go ahead and take the place of the ones that I've lost because I know I offer a product that's very valuable. You can't get anywhere else. I give a great value proposition and I know how to do this. Raising money is hard, but retaining money during a loss is even harder. I'm sure. And the people that are able to do that, I think, from my experience, are incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. So how do you do it? How do you take a guy, I mean, everyone in every business is gonna go through this if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, if you're gonna be the head of a business, if you're the head of a department. Everyone at some point has to explain to somebody else why their money, time, investment was still well spent even though they didn't see the return they were expecting. So what goes through your mind or what do you say when you have to get on the phone with the guy who just put in a lot of money with you and, and you just and it, forget if it was your fault. That's, mm-hmm. But let's assume that with regardless if it was your fault or not, it doesn't really matter, right? Because the guy, I'm sure he's thinking to himself. He's livid. Yeah. And he's like, maybe David's dumb. Maybe he's the, <laughs> he's the wrong guy. So how do you get around it? What do you say? What do you, what, what, what do, you do? Okay, I'm going to tell you. So... I, every, this, there is no formula for this because it really all goes back to what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're trying to do? How are you making money? Okay. So we make money by finding undervalued opportunities, right? Every opportunity, like I said, like we talked about at the outset is event driven. There are certain catalysts that are going to occur and going to open up that value. I go back to my investor, whether they're happy or whether, whether they're not happy or whether they are, I know I have to coach them through difficult times. And I say to them, look guys, nothing has changed with respect to the investment. As a matter of fact, in a lot of situations, things have gotten better. The market fell out of bed, the whole world's panic stricken, Greece, Russia, Ukraine, I don't know what the issue, oil, you know, and everyone's just running for the hills. Now is my time. This is when I double down. And this is when you should in turn be doubling down in me. Now, if you're a first-time investor and you've only seen gains and this is your first dip, I give you a pass. All you need to do is ride through with me. But on the second dip in our relationship that this happens, I'm going to come to this office, I'm going to hold your hand, and I'm walking out with a check you're going to put in more money because I've shown you now over time that I bat a very high batting average. And even when I'm down in the count, so to say, at the end of the day, you know that my batting average is really high and we're still going to knock this thing out of the park at the end of the day. So you're saying what you're, what you're looking for when you're dealing with loss is changing the, the, the term, changing the term. Give me more time. Let me show you that we're not, the loss isn't just 
um, a temporary setback. It is actually part of a larger plan. And if you give me the time, and what if you got in a situation where you actually made the mistake? Oh, you, you, you got to take it on the arm as quickly as you possibly can. You own up to the mistake. You try to make the mistake cost as little as possible and you got to learn from yeah. it. I just, I, I, the more I'm seeing this, the more I think people need to fully understand what you're saying here is that the more I'm seeing people like you deal with this and the more people I'm speaking to that deal with investors and that make mistakes because you're a human being, the more I'm hearing that the worst thing that you can do in a mistake is hide, delay, play around. The best guys, they make a mistake they pick up the phone, they say, we made a mistake, or we, we did our best, and this is what happened, or they explain away what they were thinking. It wasn't just like we were asleep at the wheel, but honesty is the best policy whenever you're stuck. Honesty is the best policy. The, the issue is this, right? And, you, and you, you highlighted an important point, which is, look, in an ideal world, I would buy an asset for X, and it would climb upward until I sold it for Y, and it would never go down, Right? Sometimes it happens, and I look like the greatest genius on earth. Sometimes the exact opposite happens. It goes down, 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 down. If nothing's changed with respect to what it is that I'm investing in, I'm buying all the way down, 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 down. Okay? Now, to your point earlier, I go to the investor and I explain, I didn't plan on this down, down, down action, you got to take that negative and turn it into a positive. And just, we have to make more money on this now. That's just what, <laughs> that's what the market is giving us. We have to go ahead and take right. advantage of that. And yes, maybe this takes, I don't know if it takes longer now. It may take the same amount of time, but the curve doesn't just go up. It goes down and then up again, right? And maybe we end off at the same place with the same amount of time. <clears throat> when I go talk to that investor, after I've done all my work and gut check and due diligence and double check and triple check and quadruple check my investment thesis, and I come out with, I'm being wholly honest here. There's nothing wrong here. If I were to pull out now, we'd take a huge loss. And I'm saying, no, double down on this investment. I go to that investor and I say, we got to ride this out. We got to go higher from here. So... It's not covering up the loss because I honestly believe it's about it. So it's not about before you're honest with your investor, I'd say more important than being honest with your investor. Absolutely. Be honest all the time. You've got to be honest with yourself. That's the answer. That's a huge, huge component. That's the answer. And it's very hard to be honest with yourself, yeah. right? Because even if you're, you're an honest win. guy, yeah. you're not a liar. But at a certain point, you're you biased. say to yourself- Am I drinking too much of my own Kool-Aid? Yeah, you're biased to what you believe right. in. Right. So you've got to divorce yourself from that emotion and say, you know, and again, you're still going to have those naysayers, right? So the chorus gets louder now and they have evidence on their side right. now. And now you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm staring down. I'm going to take a bath in this thing or I have to say like a totally insane guy, no, this is the right I thing. got, in spite of everything, I'm going for more. But that's what we do. And I think, tell me if I'm wrong, I think that is the secret to raising money. I believe, and people, the, one of the hardest things people deal with all the time is money. People hate talking about money. Even the biggest hedge fund guys that make lots of money, 
when it comes to their own promotion or their equity splits or some investor down the road or mm-hmm. as soon as it comes to asking somebody for money, they'll ask somebody for uh, anything in the world. I mean, it's, I think it's easier to ask someone to borrow their own children for a bunch of years and ask somebody for some money. And I think the reason is because at the end of the day, if you're if you're a straight guy, if you're a if you're crooked, you'll do anything. But let's take the, the straight guys, the good guys out there, the guys that are out there that want to raise money for a business, that have an idea, that want to forget their own business. The guy's in a department and wants to tell the CEO, I, you know, give us more an al- a, a, a larger allocation. I think what it comes down to is that people are not fully honest with themselves as to whether or not what they're talking about is right. They don't do their own diligence. They don't spend enough time believing and doing checking their own thesis. So they have an idea, they want to do this, and they run. And when you run and you get to somebody, before you ask them for money, there's that little voice that says, you sure? You're just going to take the guy's money? But if you really buy what you're saying and you spend the time, then what you're doing is you're giving them an opportunity. If you buy what you're saying... You're giving someone an opportunity to be part of what you believe in. And if you don't, you're just taking something from somebody else. And most people, when, when push comes to shove, they feel like they're just stealing it. They feel like they're, they're not doing the right thing and they can't make that request. But if you believe in what you're doing to the, to the nth degree, you get in that room, asking for money becomes that much easier. I wholly agree with you. I mean, you have to be intoxicated with what you're asking for on the one hand. On the other hand, you probably have had to have had hundreds of meetings of totally skeptical people that have asked you so many brow-beating questions that after all that, you're still going to go into the next guy right? because you still believe, now you believe with more conviction than you ever had that what you're doing, like you said, is you're giving that person an opportunity to invest with you. That's the difference. You're not asking them for a, a favor or a gift or a whatever. You're giving them, a you chance. are the guy giving them the opportunity. Right, right, right. right, right. They owe you. Exactly. Right? This is your- That's right. right. And, that, and that, I think, is something that many people jump a step and miss. Many people that are trying to raise money out there, trying to start businesses out there, entrepreneurs, they're so excited to be doing the business that they don't spend enough time in the business. Being an entrepreneur, having an upside, starting something, getting involved in something, whatever it is that they're doing, it's so exciting to be doing things that they don't spend enough time in the trenches of the thing that they're doing to where they really look around and go, this is actually an amazing idea. Like, this really could make a difference or better. It's an okay idea. And let's spend another two months, three months, one week, really thinking it through so we get that two or three nuances that shift it so that it actually becomes a great idea, that we carve it down a little bit, that we, like you said in the beginning of the show, which I think is something that most people don't get, is that you don't have to do everything to do something really well. In fact, most people, and I want to get your thoughts on this, the better they are, the more they're able to sort of laser beam something. Even if they're doing multiple things, they can sort of laser beam into something and say, we know what we're really, really good at, and with that prism, we can see the world. And the more you can work on yourself, the more it helps you interact with other people. So on that point, I think a lot of the greatest business leaders say the most valuable asset they have is hiring people that 
do for them things that they couldn't do as well themselves. Right. I, I absolutely, I don't lead a battalion of people in terms of my workforce, but I totally understand that I have certain things that I am excellent at and then everything else. And the same thing with my partner. There are certain things that he is excellent at and then, then there's everything else. And we know how to do everything. You've got to. I think there is some validity to having every job in the company at some point from the mailroom on up because you do need to have done that to understand the talent necessary to do that. And so now that I've done everything in the company and, and my partner can easily do everything that I do, probably not as well as I can, and I similarly can do everything that he does, but definitely not as well as he can. But now that we've both done everything that there is to do, as we grow, we will know exactly the talent necessary for each role. And it, not, it will not be necessarily someone that's done that before somewhere else. Right. Like I know that a certain person needs to come from a different line of work or a different industry in order to do this even better than anyone's ever done it before in my industry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that, that I think requires a lot of maturity that I see a lot of businesses suffer with. And entrepreneurs mm-hmm. are listening to this really need to think about this a lot, which is people hire their friends, people hire people similar to them. People like to be around people that are like them. And they're not self-aware enough to realize that if I'm going to be successful, it's going to be in the complement of, of others. Right. And so even though I may butt heads, if you will, with somebody else, I need that person in my life because they're just better uh-huh. at the way they do certain things than I am. I, I'm, at, I'm at a point in my life where I won't hire someone without a personality test anymore. The, I mean, I am at that level where I don't even think people are self-aware to know what they are. I think there are a lot of people that have been sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of the sensationalism of business that all are just sort of following the Pied Piper of being entrepreneurs, when deep down they may not all be the CEO types. They may be operators, and they may be research people, or they may be, you know, everyone has different personalities, and they don't even know the personalities that they have. So they come at you, and they go, I want to be X, Y, and Z, and I love this stuff. And you go, great. And you give them what to do, and they go, well, I really want to do this. And I go, wait a second, you said you wanted to do that. And like, well, I don't know, I, I like the title of that. I like the, there's a character that I saw in some show that it did that or I read a book once when I was in eighth grade about that but I, I, I'm really good at this and I really think that what you said is really important that people need to fully understand that building your team means understanding who you are and that's something that I think is really coming through in our interview that I want to sort of sort of hone in on here and it's really what I'm hearing from you and tell me if I'm missing it and I know you personally so I know that you're like this is the more you're able to be aware, aware of one's strengths and limitations, aware of where job you're in right now, whether that works for you or not, aware of the, the strengths and the weaknesses of your business. The more you're able to be aware, honest and aware, the more you're able to be impactful. And some people just don't take the time to be aware. They're in a job they hate and like, whatever, I'll just sort of like, you know, you know, you know, anesthetize myself by just like watching TV every night and they're never going to leave. 
and they should leave, but they're never going to leave because they're not aware enough. Some people aren't aware enough to know that I'm not good at this or I am really good at this or I'm not, I don't know if my thesis, how many people have you met in life where they say the same thing every year and you're like, have you thought it through since? Like, are you still like, is it the same five lines you're saying? Like, have you really thought through something so where you can present a thesis when you go in and get, like you say, browbeated, you come out and be like, all right, that guy was wrong. Or you come out and go, hey, wait a second. Like four of his points were right. Like we, we weren't prepared. Let's go back and think about this. The more aware we are as to what we are and what we're doing, the more opportunity that we have to get people around us to be part of us. I'm the furthest thing from that person that delivers the same five lines every year. I know. I change intraday. <laughs> I think you have to. In my, in my world, you have to. I think in every world because you have to. Because nothing, my world is A, brutally aware and honest. I wear my numbers on my sleeve. I know that's, it's crazy, but it's, I have no choice but to be aware and honest because at, at the end of any, every day or even in the middle of any day at a certain point in time, I know how much money we've either made or lost, right? I can't hide from that. It's impossible. Actually, that is one of the most greatest things about what I do, right? Because it requires you to grow up, right, in so many ways really, really fast. Like, you can't hide. You got to be what you are. You have to have reasons for everything that you're doing and reasons for everything that has happened. Immediate. It's not like you're involved in this illiquid asset that 10 years from now will get monetized or you're involved in this litigation that will take 800 you know, trial motions and then an appeal and then an appeal on the appeal and who knows where we'll be at right. that point. Eventually right. we'll win. And although we're getting paid all the way through. Right, so exactly, okay. exactly. So my world is it's so different and that's great for me. I actually relish that. Although it's brutally honest and sometimes it's brutally unforgiving at the same time, it requires a maturation constantly. Yeah. And an evolution constantly. My pitch about my fund on day one, and day one wasn't that long ago, it was January 2011, versus what my pitch is today, it's like night and day. It was like I was playing, I was playing in the sandbox back then. Now, Forget about playing on the adult swings. I'm already trying to figure out what the playground of the future is going to be. Right. Like that's where I am. And I, I may not be there in terms of the assets we have under management, but if I want to get there, if I want to get to that multi-billion dollar, and this goes back to an earlier point, there is no blueprint for that. You can't copycat and become the next whoever. Right. Because it doesn't exist. Exactly. You have to be that guy that charts that water. So that's where I'm at. And, but that's where, that's where we all need to be at in our area. And that's why I'm so happy you're saying it on this show, which is that this isn't something that, you see, in your industry, it's very hard to hide, which is why you're surviving and thriving because you in general don't like hiding because you thrive on that, but you can't hide. But there are a lot of people listening that are in industries or in companies that can hide. I feel terrible for those people. But the, yeah, and, and what's happening is, is that it's breeding a sense of, and it's, 
of mediocrity because yeah. they can get away with it. Yeah. So if I'm in a department that's going to give me a check every week, why would I want to push myself to, to no change? motivation? Absolutely. If, if I'm working and now I know a lot of guys that are out there saying, hey, I'm working for somebody else. I'm working for myself and I'm doing OK. Like I'm just churning and churning and churning. And what you're saying and what I'm, I'm hearing you say and trying to, to, if anything, reinforce is that. If you see yourself as a person that needs to always be growing and aware and growing and aware, feet to the fire, what's going to happen is you're going to chart new territory. You're going to see new things. And that self-doubt that stops you is only hurting you because you don't you don't need a, a, pl- a blueprint. You don't need a playbook. You know what? Write your own playbook. Right. That's so, the beauty of the world. So the person that's in that easy-to-be-complacent position and just they can't work up the motivation – I would tell them, again, going back to something I said earlier about desperation being the greatest inspiration, think about what you would do if they fired you at the end of the day today. Burn the bridge. Yeah. You got to be thinking that way yeah. all the time. Yeah. That's funny. That's an interesting thing. There's a bunch of guys that I know that think like that, that say, I'm, I'm in my job and, I, and it's okay. And if they'd fire me, you know, I kind of be happy. And I would say to them, why? And they would say, because then it would force me yep. to be the person that I'm supposed to be. Yes. I get that a lot from some guys saying, I'm like, just go do it. They're like, no, no, no I can't leave. I got this. I got that. Da, 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 da. However, sometimes I sit in my desk and I'm, I'm like almost hoping that my boss comes in and says, you're out. So, so, so what I would say to that person is, um, be happy that you're not getting fired today. Um, that day may come. But even if that doesn't come and you can't force yourself to get up the motivation to build something on the side while you're doing this, at the very least, put yourself in a place with respect to your family and with respect to your financial position so that at some point, you can do this. You can do it, whether it be by force or by choice. Right. Prepare your spouse and prepare your family and prepare yourself financially that you can go on that 12 to 18 month burn run and throw caution to the wind and go for the moonshot. Yeah. Because no, you totally. may have to do it. And at some point with God's help, it should be a blessing. You may get up the courage to do it on your own and just go do it. But the, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that they do fire you. And at that point, you're not prepared at all. Let me ask you this, and, and, and I think that, and I know the time is running, so I, I think this is the last question I can get from you today, and I appreciate the time you being here. You know, I know you're a person that's pushing, pushing, pushing all day. You're everywhere, thank God. You're, I see you on the news every week. I see you in print. I see you on the radio. I see you uh, here on the radio. I see you on TV. And I know that no one handed this to you. You do not like sort of roll into like a legacy, you know, deal with some PR firm. You're, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. There's a word that I hear from guys, from women and men around that are trying to do great things. The word is tired. People are tired. They're up early. They're bed late. They're thinking 24-7. And for many people at many times, the exhaustion comes because it's a lot of darkness, right? There are moments. There are blips. There are, you know, there are, you know great days, great meetings, great moments. But you know this more than anybody that if you're going to do something, you got to be willing to sort of, sort of just keep on pushing, keep on crawling in the darkness and you'll be tired not just physically tired. You'll be tired. You'll be emotionally, mentally, physically spent. What do you do to overcome that? What do you do to overcome the 
exhaustion that sets in once you get into this game, once you're a month in, once you're three years in, and there are ups and there are downs, but for the most part, you know that it's a slugfest and slugfests are exhausting. What do you do? What do you draw on to get through the, the exhaustion to keep you motivated and keep you pushing? I try my best to minimize, and this is counter the type of person that I am. And so I have to work hard at it. I take the knocks and I try to shrink them to as small as I can make them. And I take the successes and try to make them as big as I can make them and feed off of that. So feed off the positive energy and try to ignore the negative energy. Now I'm a guy who's a brutally honest B wildly concerned about the fortunes of my investors. Um, C takes criticism very much to heart. Um, so all those aspects of my personality make it very difficult to do what I have to do. Um, but, but I try to do that as best I can. I try to lead a very holistic life. Um, again, that's the way I cope with it. My partner copes with it in a very different way, which is he's maniacal when it comes to work. I mean, is he's a 24 seven kind of guy and he becomes even more of a 24 seven kind of guy when things are not going well. Right. And usually the best antidote to things not going well is just time. Right. And you can't, that's one thing that we cannot control. We can control a lot, a lot of stuff but we can't make the, 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 the arms on the clock go any faster. Um, or slower. Exactly. So I lead a holistic life. I focus on my, my wife and my children. I focus on religion a lot. I focus on outside pursuits a ton. And I try to draw positive energy from all of those other places because that's what you need if you truly believe that all you need is time, and for the most part, that's what we've needed at times, then you just got to buy your time. Whatever you need to do to buy that time, go ahead and do it. Great. Um, and that's, that's really what it, 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 um, it turns, turns out to be. And I will say this, you get better at it with time. The, the, the more often you go through those dark periods, the less dark those periods become as time rolls on. Cause you say to yourself by evidence of previous experience, this passes, right? Right. You're, you're, it, it'll it. all pass. Excellent. David, thank you so much. How do people find you? Maglin capital. What, what do they do? They, you have a website. www.maglin.com. They can follow us on Twitter at Maglin capital. They can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and on every single radio station. We're all over the place, man. <laughs> and just look at Fox or CNBC or ever at Bloomberg, wherever else you can find David. David, thank you for Charlie, joining us. Charlie, it's been a pleasure. It's more than just events. It's what they mean to your life. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari.